We're living ever longer and healthier lives. Are we ready? Our extra decades impact everything from careers and couples to companies and countries. The old three-course meal of education, work, and retirement is morphing into a four-quarter feast. So how does knowing we're likely to have more life impact our thinking and planning for the journey? And how are companies adapting as both talent and consumers get older? I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and this is Four Quarter Lives. Mary Pearl was born and raised to be a New York debutante, but she had other plans. Her mother wanted her to go to Wellesley College for Women, but Yale opened to women just in the nick of time. This was 1972. She then flew the coop again, became a biologist, and explored the behaviors of primates in the wild, then became an early environmentalist connecting the dots between animal habitat and human health, well before this was on everyone's agenda. Her third quarter saw her move into academe, where she founded a program at Stony Brook University around these ideas. Later, she became the dean of Macaulay Honors College. It's the City University of New York's school for top students. Now, at 72, she's unstoppably at Stanford's Distinguished Careers Institute, preparing her fourth quarter. You'll see she has some big, new, but always creative plans. Welcome, Mary Pearl, to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you with us. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Eva. And my listeners won't be able to see the remarkable sort of 40-year-old-looking woman in front of my (laughs) Zoom screen, but I'm going to ask you perhaps to start by sharing how old you are, how many years of life experience do you have, and what brought you to Stanford's Distinguished Careers Institute at this point in time? I was born in 1950, so I love your quarter designation because the arithmetic's easy for me. I just turned 72 yesterday, as a matter of fact, so it's a good day for That is actually visually unbelievable. I just want listeners to know. So this is another (laughs) entire redefining of what we look like at different ages and stages. Well, I remember uh, Gloria Steinem saying, when everyone's saying, oh my goodness, you don't look 50. She said, this is what 50 looks like. So this is what the 70s look like. I've known my whole life that I'd probably live to be 100 because longevity runs in the distaff side of the family. So my mother actually lived to be 100, and so did her mother. And her sister lived to be 97. And so I always had in mind... You've got the role models. You've got got the path. I've got the path. Although I think they decided uh, they were old. You know, although my mother would make fun of people on television and say, Oh, I'm 65 years old. And she'd imitate them she being in her mid-80s and and playing aggressive duplicate bridge. So yes, she was a good role model. So why Stanford? Why at 72? Okay, well, I was really very happy in my role as dean of the Honors College of the City University of New York. It's called Macaulay Honors College. And 2,200 of the smartest, highest achieving students out of an undergraduate CUNY population of 250,000 students Were my students, they were so inspiring, so much fun, a college that is dominated by immigrants and children of immigrants with great drive, loved being the dean there. And then various events happened in my life. I was widowed, and then a couple of years later, I met a wonderful man who was headed to DCI, and I hadn't heard about it before. I thought, oh gosh, I'm so happy as dean, but on the other hand, I can't be dean forever. Here I am turning 70. 
this seems like more elegant off-ramp than other considerations, which might leave me with regret. I thought, oh, Stanford's something new, and it just presented a panoply of courses. And uh, in contrast to the Harvard program, I think it's nice for wayfarers who don't have a strong purpose. I have to preface that by saying I have led a purpose-driven life. I've been completely dedicated to environmental conservation and to access to high-quality education for underserved students. And those two passions have animated a career. So for me, it wasn't so much finding a mode of service as much as thinking it's time for a reset. I want to go from full-time work to a portfolio of activities, and this will be the way to do it. Wonderful. Now, extremely clear. So I want to dig into these rich 72 years, and I'm going to drag you back to zero and ask you where it all started. Where were you born? What kind of parent? Obviously, a long-living family. (laughs) Yeah, well, Um, on my mother's side, my my father's side, not so much, but um, an interesting combination. I was born in New York City, Leroy Sanitarium at 61st between Park and Lexington. (laughs) That's Um, very specific. (laughs) Very specific. My mother's family was of a Sephardic Spanish-Portuguese origin, and her ancestors had come to New Amsterdam in the mid-1600s. And uh, then she had an admixture of uh, way back. And my father, too, his family came to Massachusetts Bay Colony again in the early 17th century. They were all Puritans. So uh, you can imagine when my parents married, both proud families thought the other was sort of marrying down. So, but they were, they had to... You're my second interview in a couple of days that talks about people with both sides of the family thinking they're marrying down. This must be much more common than anybody suspects. Well, they had something very much in common. They had very high quality educations, very... I guess, socially prestigious families, but both ruined in the Depression. And so they were raised to live lives that would have been much more at leisure than they ended up having to do. So that was sort of a a tension in the family. What was the cultural imprint of you of this family, this social background, uh, this birth in uptown New York? Well, something else has to be said, which was I was a girl and not a boy. And so I was the youngest of three. I had an older brother, older sister, and uh, it was really an age where girls had modified expectations. And uh, my father died when I was only 12 of a sudden heart attack. And the only conversation about my future I remember with him was his talking about my uh, debutante uh, party. I was going to say my coming out party, but no one says that (laughs) anymore for a debutante. So, you know, the, the idea was to raise me to be a housewife. And uh, when it came time to select a college, my mother really thought that Wellesley would be the right place to marry a Harvard man because Radcliffe, where I wanted to go, might make me too mannish. She was always worried that I didn't have enough guile. And I still don't know what guile is. I still don't have it. (laughs) Not something you're really going to want to want a lot of, I don't think. Well, you know, so she wanted the best for me, but the best was something very different. And so I'd say... Quarter one was um, really the two major changes that I initiated myself. And I think despite the heavy sort of family pressure, I could have agency in my own life. And one of the biggest favors I did for myself in my whole life was when I was 16, I applied to study abroad and uh, I spent a year 
my last high school year in Argentina in a small colonial city in the Northwest called Salta. And um, I acquired complete fluency so rapid that my AFS, that was the program, mother thought that I was her, my soul had come back to her. She had that kind of Latin American magical realism that she had a miscarriage the year I was born. So logically, I was her daughter returning to her. her lost daughter, wow. Yeah, so it was very intense. And and they were a boisterous Italian-American family. And uh, I'll never forget, I was invited to a tea with some young women from the Club 20 de Febrero, which was the descendants of the Spanish surnames of the, of the community. And um, they were showing their dresses. And I remember thinking, oh, these girls, they're so pretentious. They know nothing about the New York assemblies. And then a light bulb went off. You ninny. You know, this is just pretension is pretension and it's useless. <laughs> so they saved me from being a snob. Anyway, so I, I came back, but I was all set to go to Wellesley. Cultural contexting is the best way to discover your own culture. That's right. <laughs> there, it's so true. I remember being so shocked by commercials when I came back to the United States and saw TV again for the first time, seeing how unrealistic and ridiculous, you know, you get to snapshot of your culture. When you first come back from being immersed somewhere else, that's hugely valuable. It made all the difference in my life, opened all kinds of career opportunities until today. And I'm still in touch with my warm Italian-Argentine family. They came to my daughter's wedding a few years ago. So that was just great. And then I went to Wellesley and I hadn't made that choice. I had been in Argentina when my mother and the guidance counselor sorted this out and got me an early decision. Wow. So oh, wow. Luckily... Yale announced that it was going co-ed. So I just leapt in and applied and got in. And uh, wow, I was off to the races. It was a time of consciousness raising. It made me see the difference from being at Wellesley, where you really, there was a song sung to you if you became engaged, but there wasn't a song sung to you if you got into professional grad school. But at Yale, it was clearly, you were being groomed for leadership. And in fact, the president of Yale, Camille Brewster, promised the alumni, because I was in the first cohort of women who went to Yale, and he had to, the alumni were inflamed. And he said, well, I recognize that Yale has an obligation to the United States to create 1,000, graduate 1,000 leaders a year. So we won't reduce the number of men. We're just adding some women. (laughs) So in my class, we had 1,000 men and 250 women. But of course, Kingman diagnosed it wrong. I became a leader. Who knows? You know, that's just how it went. You're a fascinating (laughs) reminder. I was born just a decade later and my imprint is so radically different. And it's really good to be reminded how fast things really flipped and changed for women. It is. It is so true. When I graduated from college in 1972, I couldn't take out a credit card in my own name. It had to have my father or brother. Yeah. So, yes. We forget. So, fast forward, graduate from Yale. Where are we at 25? And who is that young 25-year-old woman? What is she expecting for her second quarter? Well, it really was pivotal because I told you the two critical decisions I made for myself. I made an unfortunate choice of a marriage to a wonderful guy, Charlie Pillsbury, from the Billing family. He was, you know, just my mother pleased his punch. Everybody, please, this is a perfect wedding. This was the parental um, expectation, not marriage. That's right. But then I decided to age 25 that I wanted to go back to graduate school. I had um, sort of followed him to law school and we were living in Cambridge and I wanted to go back to graduate school. It was my turn and I applied. I actually got 
into a couple of schools, including Harvard and, and Yale. But I decided to go to Yale because I really wanted to be in that program. Went there. I started uh, my graduate studies. And D- oh, did your husband applaud this move or was he? Um, he was a, a great guy. I think he was more perplexed. This is a yeah. tough time for yeah. young men to be husbands because women were just um, starting to assert themselves and have a notion that they could have agency in deciding, hey, wait, it's my career turn. And I think it was positively perplexing to him. He was preparing to be a tax lawyer. He, he ended up doing much more social justice work in his life, which I admire tremendously. But we were a mismatch. And every time I went to class, I was engaging with graduate students. I was so excited. And then my, my heart's desire came to do field work. I wanted to understand the evolution of behavior. And there was an opportunity to study wildlife primates in Pakistan and uh, in the Himalayan foothills. And off I went. No one was pleased with me. I can imagine your mother when you discussed this. Oh, gosh. You know. What did she say? Well, she was, of course, horrified. She was such a loving person because at regular intervals, I I horrified her with my choices. And I remember her finally (laughs) coming around saying, well... You have to be true to thine own heart. Be true. It has to be that way. And I really thanked her for recognizing that. And off I went. But you were, you were her monkeys. education, weren't you? You were her feminist education. In some ways, I was, education. that's right. It, it helped her see what might have been, you know, because she's a brilliant woman who was a housewife. That was what, what she could do. And uh, she, after my father died when I was 12, she remarried a distant cousin who also was a melange of Mayflower and Sephardic. So they had a wonderful marriage. I think was happier than the first. And he introduced me to birding. He loved watching birds. And I just got into it in the biggest way. So going in to do field work was in part something he was excited for me to do. And it was thanks to him that I got interested. So uh I, I got there. Off and you went. <laughs> off I went. I studied Himalayan rhesus monkeys and their social networks and uh, really came to know monkeys. It was like inspired by Jane Goodall. I did sort yep. of that sort of work. Yep. But I also saw that the forest was being destroyed around me because of corrupt forestry management. And um, I saw that the origin of the Indus was in our study site. And I saw the water silting up because the roots weren't holding in the soil And I could just see this environmental disaster unfolding. And this, again, is in a time, the late 70s, early 80s, when you didn't see environmental stories. No one would have been able to define the word ecology to you. But I was seeing habitat being destroyed, and I became committed to wildlife. So I came back to the United States, finished my degree. And again, to the disappointment of my academic advisor, I applied to conservation organizations rather than applying to teach at a college. And yep. I got a job at World Wildlife Fund. And I was like the fourth PhD in the, in the institution. Wow. So again, wow. it makes you realize how quickly things changed, how different yep. they were back in, in the day. I stayed there a year and then an opportunity arose with the New York Zoological Society, now known as Wildlife Conservation Society. And um, my uh, career blossomed. I also married one of the, my fellow grad students who uh, was a working, came from a working class uh, Jewish family in Queens, <laughs> again, to my mother's horror. But he became <laughs> her favorite uh, son-in-law because he was 
just a great guy. And when we got married, we, we made a commitment to nature as well as to one another. So that animated our, our marriage. He became a professor at Columbia. I built my career in nature conservation at first the New York Zoological Society, Wildlife Conservation Society. Then I became the head of uh, my own organization. I was hired to head something called the Wildlife Trust. And so it was uh, really an exciting time. We also built together a consortium of Columbia University with Wildlife Trust, with the New York Botanical Garden, the New York Zoological Society, and the Museum of Natural History, because, well, it's too long a story to tell you, but it was a big homecoming of people who study whole organisms and nature conservation from these institutions. Yes, because it had been so molecular, because of the molecular revolution that really changed biology departments. So people who studied whole animals and evolution had gone to these institutions, and I was a typical person like that. And so we created the first new department at Columbia in 50 years, which was uh, included evolutionary biology and ecosystem studies. So that was just really great and really so exciting. And then we, Don and I also had a couple of children in those years in 82 and 87. I guess that's when I was um, 37. You have to do a bit of biology at home too, right? (laughs) Uh, Yes. As I said to my husband, also a biologist, this is the ultimate biological trip (laughs) to have your body overtaken by a fetus and then having a child just fabulous. And we were able to take them into the field. Every summer, we coordinate our field work. I became head of the Asia Pacific Program for Wildlife Conservation Society, administrator of their field conservation programs. And then I went to uh, Wildlife Trust. This was all in uh, quarter all in two. Um, yes. And, that was um, a busy building family careers. Building, yes, I would call it my building quarter. My formation yep. quarter was to 25, then my building, building the family, building my career, and also building two new fields, which is very exciting. Conservation biology. I was one of the founders of the Society for Conservation Biology. I was uh, the international editor of the new journal we created. And then I noticed that a couple of my scientists were getting sick in the field. And one in particular, working in Cote d'Ivoire, had a virus that no one could identify at the Institute for Tropical Medicine anywhere. And I thought, oh, my goodness, wildlife biologists have been looking at diseases noise. What if it's a driver of populations? And so I got involved in looking at health outcomes of environmental change. What's going on with the pathogens? And this, uh, I managed to get a grant from a Danish foundation to support bringing together wildlife biologists together with public health scientists and physicians and veterinarians And the Danes said, you know, this would be a lot more interesting if you brought human health into the equation. Absolutely. And I thought, yes. Yes. And so we had. (laughs) And now I'm getting into. Yes. And that just when that happening. Well, I have to tell you, this was the flip of the quarter because I was just turning 50. And I tried to get the Zoological Society, the Wildlife Conservation Society, to take up this notion of looking at health moving through wildlife, livestock, and humans, and couldn't get them going on it. And then I was recruited to run this organization, Wildlife Trust, which really um, was a bit rudderless. It had only given me two grants, like World Wildlife Fund would give $100,000 to a project, they'd give $10,000. They had no personality. So I talked to the board about building up the board, finding a focus. I gave them several ideas, environmental ethics being one, another being 
environmental health. And uh, they went for the environmental health. So that's when I got the grant to, it was just, I moved organizations and was able to move the grant with me. And so quarter three really began with a bang with creating conservation medicine. We created a consortium with Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, Harvard Medical School, my organization, uh, a wildlife trust. And it was just so super a real, exciting. A, a real classic third quarter expansion of vision, systems integration, impact across much broader scope. Very archetypal, I'd say. So, <laughs> so tell me, okay. so, yeah, so tell me what happened then in Q3. Okay, so I was uh, working in that and my organization was growing rapidly and we had two divisions. We had the division of health, which was the conservation medicine part. And then there was the wildlife biology. And another aspect or generative aspect of my career was building the careers of local scientists. Another thing that I discovered working at both World Wildlife Fund and uh, Wildlife Conservation Society in that time, it's changed today, but back in that time, only kind of white men from America and Europe were calling the shots. And yet I was receiving grant proposals from brilliant scientists from Brazil and Guatemala and Venezuela and Madagascar. And so that early little foray into Latin America came back to serve you well. Served me very well. I was, I really was happy to, I had been head of the Asia Pacific program at um, the Wildlife Conservation Society. But then when I had my organization, then I expanded rapidly in Latin America because I had no language barrier. I also picked up Portuguese. And so it was building careers of local scientists who had their degrees from places like Princeton and the University of of Mexico is a fine university, or they had gotten them from Cambridge. The point was that here were these scientists equipped to be conservationists. And best of all, they were so committed to the land and, and the wildlife that it wouldn't matter if there were a revolt in their country. No one would need to be evacuated. <laughs> they were there and committed. And so it was a, one of the great thrills of my professional life to build careers of local scientists and bring them really into the international conservation conversation. I hate to use all my theory about quarters at yes. you, but yeah, another very um, typical feature of third quarter careers is the generativity of nourishing that next generation with everything that you built in Q2, you then start passing it on, right? Exactly. And then it went into turbocharge because after eight or nine years at, well, after a considerable number of years at Wildlife Trust, we changed our name to Eco Health Alliance to reflect that the health component kept growing. Yep. I was recruited to become the founding dean of a college of sustainability at uh, SUNY, State University of New York, uh, Stony Brook, in a campus in Southampton. And I thought, why not? You know, so I felt that I had done all I really could at the Wildlife Trust, and it was time for others to move up and me to move out. Because sometimes jobs have a lifetime, and I always have a hard time saying goodbye. But when I'm pulled to something new, I have enough sense to grab for it. So I became the founding dean of a college of sustainability, and I fell in love with public universities because they've got great students of all backgrounds. And uh, I especially like the School of Sustainability that I was the founding dean of because we had students who might have washed out at another school and their parents said, well, you're going to public ed now. And then they'd have an experiential major where you have to get your feet wet and you collect soil and you observe. And, 
And for many students, it's the first time they realized how smart they were. They just didn't know that this was the way that they learned best. Yeah, so, completely different So my greatest happiness. Yes. And then also there were students who had grown up thinking they were going to be marine biologists until they took ocean chemistry and realized wasn't in the cards. So we created majors in uh, nature writing, nature photography, to nature fine arts. And we also had an environmental history major. So we encompassed anyone who loved the environment. And it was fantastic. And we quickly were becoming uh, very well known. And then the state being what it is at the 2008, 2009, the budget went through the cellar because uh, New York State's budget is very dependent on the health of the finance sector. So a new president of Stony Brook was brought in. And so the president who brought me in with the idea and was totally behind it, he was in, he looked at my campus and saw I had no, at that point, I just had my hiring budget. I'd only hired about 23 faculty. None of them had tenure. It was just like a wow. year and a half. And uh, uh, so that was a, a loop. That was a, a little, a little uh, life quake. Yep. A little life quake. And how old were you then? 58. A sensitive age for many people. It was a sensitive age, although it's great to be in academia because you can still be considered young <laughs> in the academic setting. And um, so where'd you move? I made a bad move first. I was um, I had been helping the two people who had founded a Buddhist retreat center. They also wanted it to be a center for conservation philosophy. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll I'll give this a try. I think because I was angry at at Stony Brook because they were offering me a center in the big campus. I mean, not even a school. I mean, it was So I just wanted to say, tough luck, kiddos. You you didn't like my school. I'm out. (laughs) And so I did this and it soon became apparent that it was kind of a waste of my time and their money because they said they wanted a professional director, but they didn't want someone of an independent mind and my great pleasure in running (laughs) organizations. They were the gurus, not you. That's correct. And they agreed not to contact the staff. So all that changed was staff members said, well, they called me and said, don't tell Mary I called, but, uh, you know, how many rolls of toilet paper are you putting in the guest rooms? I mean, you know, just details that. So I was so out. Where did, where did you pivot? How long did it take you to just see that, go in, see that, get out again? And where did you go next? It was a year. It was yeah. a year. I, I mean, I wanted to add value. And one of the ways I added value is they had only ad hoc titles for jobs and no, there was no visible ladder. There was no transparency in salary levels. And so I set that all up as a gift. That was something like a low-hanging fruit that I could do for the wonderful staff. what did you dedicate this next decade to? Okay, so then I was, uh, I'd always been in nature conservation one way or another, and I was recruited to try my hand at being provost of the Honors College at CUNY in Macaulay. And so that's uh, what I did. First, I was provost, the chief academic officer, And oh man, it was so much fun creating new curriculum, a core curriculum. I helped create a uh, general science course called Science Forward, which was a multidisciplinary course that would be as appealing to science majors as poets because it was about society's grand challenges and how we can solve them. I'm going off on a digression. So much fun. And then uh, actually... And I imagine you integrated a lot of your environmental and conservation agenda into this new curriculum. I I was thinking, 
Well, no one knew about Macaulay, even though it was uh, for honor students and tuition free. And students all got laptop computers because 60% of our students came in without regular access to computers. Hard as, as it is to believe. And now I'm coming closer to current times, only about a decade ago. So uh, one of the things I did was as a kickoff to Frontiers of Science, Every sophomore who had to take this course, every single student had to take part in a bio blitz, which is a 24-hour survey of the plants and animals in a park in New York. And we started with Central Park, and it was covered by The Atlantic and by New York Magazine. And all the students were so excited because if you'd ask them what the animals were in New York, they'd say, well, they're rats, they're pigeons, there's cockroaches. And here they found like 850 species of plants and animals in Central Park in a 24-hour period. And it's an annual tradition, you know, until today to do that, have that common effort. But we built a wonderful faculty. Um, I loved uh, having... Uh, all the fields represented. I love working with faculty members. I love reading their work because faculty are easy. I mean, so few people outside of the discipline of a professor will read and ask questions. And I, I loved it, you know? And, and so now you can see why DCI would have been a great choice. I can me. absolutely so. see. <laughs> so I want to get some time. I'm just conscious that I really want to find, because you're a rare species of bird yourself. Uh, <laughs> At 72 now, you yourself uh, experience a new educational experience that you went to for one set of goals, but actually discovered perhaps a slightly different one. What's been the learning, the impact on you sure. of this time and this program? Well, my life got flipped upside down. It has to be said, you know, I lost my beloved husband, partner in research, partner in family building, partner in all. Just such a happy, long marriage. And then he was gone and I didn't have the heart to get At 70, the after work. how many years were you together? We That's were together long. over 40 years. And, wow. and we had had in mind our retirement would be going back to fieldwork together at a more leisurely place, maybe in the National Seashore here on Cape Cod. Oh, knocked the wind out of my sails completely. And I thought, I want to do something very different now. And so then DCI, I thought, well, I'll wrap everything up with a bow. I'll write about higher education and its future. I'll write about conservation medicine and its applications today. But um, I started studying there and I took memoir writing, which just seemed like I just followed my nose. I took courses that appealed and I loved it. And people loved hearing my stories about life in Papua New Guinea or Mayan village in Belize or all the places I'd work. <laughs> I bet. So I'm writing a memoir. I thought, okay, I'll write this memoir. And then as you go back in time and try to retrieve facts, you realize maybe there's not such a hard and fast line between memory and fiction at a certain point. I thought, I'm going to try writing fiction. And I found I loved, loved creating characters that in the workshop would excite students. And, you know, young students, they're post-adolescents. They don't stand on ceremony. If they don't like something, they'll tell you. If they like it, they will. They loved my characterizations. I learned how to write dialogue. And I thought, I think I'm going to try my hand of fiction as well. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm equipping myself now for my next venture in quarter four. I'm setting myself to be a writer. I'm giving myself 10 years to write three books. I've written two chapters of the first two books. I know I have a long road ahead of me of research and rewrites, but I'm very excited about that. I love the uh, scientist's sort of ethnographic journey into herself now at the end of life. <laughs> Instead of going out into the field, you're going deep within, which is wonderful. But and it's I can't. Really, I, 
Yeah, if I go full circle, I can tell you one of the things I remembered about my father, who I lost so early, sitting at the dining table, he was a science writer, and he used to rail at um, incorrect use of language or using highfalutin language when an Anglo-Saxon word will do. It just, words mattered, writing mattered. And now I'm writing and I'm thinking, oh, daddy, you know, I am back, back at the Isn't beginning. Isn't that fascinating? And, Isn't that yes. interesting? I can't resist to yes. ask you, can you give us a little hint of what the first two books are? Or the well, three, sure. if you've the, mapped them out. Okay. The first one is uh, going to be called Breaking Bread, because something we all do all around the world is share meals together and build community that way. So I'm going to just talk about memorable meals I've had around the world. And in telling in these chapters, you'll find out why I was there, but also what we ate, what we said. And uh, so that's the first one. Uh, the second one. My is appetite is whetted. <laughs> well, I don't know. I had wild boar uh, rare in, in PNG. I'm not sure every meal would be a delight, but um, I hope it'll be compelling. And then my other book, the fiction, is about um, a public higher education in an urban setting uh, and how wonderful the students are and how maddening the politics and bureaucracy can be. But it's From pure a front fiction, row of course. Fantastic. Ah, pure fiction. Absolutely wonderful. And then my third will be fiction. And this is, I'm excited because it's just a challenge to myself. I'm going to try an historical fiction, a story set in the early 1800s between New York and New England. It'll be in Brooklyn and in Amherst, Massachusetts. So I've got my work cut out for me going to those places and studying uh, that time. And so now that I've gone back to school, there's no stopping me and taking <laughs> courses. <laughs> you sound like your Q4 is actually just another a whole new beginning, a whole new chapter of creativity. Well, well, I'm not abandoning everything. I'm going to be on uh, some boards that really matter to me. The Institute for Ecological Research in Brazil, the Center for Large Landscape Conservation, which is global, but based in Montana. And um, I'm also going to be helping CUNY design an, an Encore career program, which I think it was made to do for a, a different kind of cohort, maybe people retiring early from unions who have all that brain power and energy, and they can be retiring at age 47 to 50 and can retool. So I'm very excited about that, too. So give me the classic question, a one-word picture, summary, or metaphor for each of your exciting four quarters. Quarter one was building and um, discovering resilience. Quarter two was building a family and career. Quarter three was creating a legacy. And quarter four is making the most of uh, a beautiful time of life. I haven't even mentioned Nana. I mean, that's my nom de grand-mère. And uh, <laughs> I've just had two new grandchildren this year. I have one who's already three. And um, I'll be putting in a lot of Nana hours. Nana and writing. I can't wait to read you, <laughs> admire you. And I am adopting you as a role model for all Q4s to become. Mary Pearl, thank you so much for sharing a quite extraordinary life. You are a pioneer of your time, of your gender, <laughs> and I think of how we even imagine or roadmap what lives can look like. Well, I'm very grateful that I lived in the time I did. I've seen so much change. It's been a wonderful ride. To the next installment. Thanks for being Thank with you. us. Thank you.
<laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.